Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Not unsurprisingly, given its title, Ursula K. Le Guin's novel, A Wizard of Earthsea, the first of six books of Earthsea, is going to focus a lot on and tell us quite a bit about magic. Magic is something that is shot through the entire narrative universe of Earthsea. In fact, the two stories that she writes before that both have to do with wizards of one form or another and get the young wizard in this case is going to be the main character and is going to be learning about magic and hearing about magic. Some of it is going to be bitter experience and some of it is going to be other people telling him things. Now there's a lot going on in this and we can say there's a multiplicity of kinds or modes of magic. So it's very important that we don't try to immediately systematize some sort of rigid classification out of this because things are in some respects a bit more loosey-goosey. This is a novel in which exposition is taking place in which we're not seeing everything all at once and there's really three main we could say users or bearers of magic in this work and, and really throughout the rest of it. In a larger sense we could say that Everything is potentially connected with magic in a way that we'll talk about. But here we're talking about entities that actually use the forces of magic or are involved in it in their very existence. So there's what we call the old powers of Earth. And Ogion is going to use that term after Ged has, in fact, run into one of these, the Stone of the Terranon. And there, we're going to see more of these as the series goes on. There's only one in this one that plays any significant role, but the next novel, Tombs of Atuan, is going to be about that as well. Same thing we can say for dragons. We're going to learn a lot more about dragons in the books that follow A Wizard of Earthsea. Already here, though, we learn some important things about dragons, and dragons are, you could say, shot through and through with magic, as we're going to find out more later on. Then we have human beings. And not all human beings have the talent or the capacity or the sensitivity for magic, as it turns out. Ged does, and it's not all that surprising given that his mother's sister, his aunt, is indeed a local witch. So perhaps there's some genetic component to it. We never really hear that much about that. Although we also do have the example of the young girl who he meets early on and then later on, Sarah, who is the daughter of an enchantress, right? And so she perhaps already has some native talent as well. So going on with this, some human beings are able to use magic, some can't. It's taken to be part of the normal way of society. So every little island will have somebody who can do magic, hopefully, because then they can help them, you know, cast spells on nets. So perhaps they'll catch more fish or change the wind 
skins so that they're more favorable or work on the boats, pick whatever you want, right? And the range of magic is incredibly wide. People use it for all sorts of purposes. As a matter of fact, we get a nice description of Ged's aunt right here. She knew nothing of the balance and the pattern which the true wizard knows and serves, which keeps him from using his spells unless real need demands. She had a spell for every circumstance and was forever weaving charms. Most of her lore was mere rubbish and humbug, nor did she know the true spells from the false. She knew many curses and was better at causing sickness, perhaps, than at cursing it. Like any village witch, she could brew up a love potion, but there were other uglier brews she made to serve men's jealousy and hate. And so, you know, what we've got here is somebody who's fairly typical for a low-level magic user. They're just kind of stumbling through. They know a few things. Some of the stuff that they think works doesn't actually work. They're constantly meddling at other people's affairs, and other people are asking them to do that. So, you know, human beings cover a, a wide range here. One of the things that is important to at least certain kinds of magic in Earthsea is this notion of the old or the true speech. And this is used by dragons. This is also used by human beings. As Ged's teachers are going to tell him at Roke, it's important to learn all these names of things. Actually, Ogian tells him that as well. And he's even learning this from his aunt. Because the name, the true name, is connected to the thing. It gives you power over and perhaps even an understanding of what the thing is and how it can be moved, shaped, used, appealed to. Now, the Hardic speech that the characters in this use is derived from the old speech, but it's not the same thing. There are other languages as well. We find out that Oskal uses its own language. The Kargish lands have their own language, but we don't really learn that much about them. Dragons are a whole different ball game. We find out that dragons speak in the old speech. They don't speak in the speeches of men. There's a discussion that Ged is having <laughs> with the dragon, and he says, he spoke as Ged did in the old speech, for that is the tongue of dragon still. Although the use of the old speech binds a man to truth, this is not so with dragons. It is their own language, and they can lie in it, twisting the true words to false ends, catching the unwary hearer in a maze of mirror words, each of which reflects the truth and none of which leads anywhere. So there's, there's a different use of this. But this language, the true speech, is the language you might say of creation and of all the created things dimly connected with it still responding to it still. So the true speech is part of what the wizards at Roke have to learn and the true speech is part of what Ged learns at the very beginning with his aunt doing this little rhyme that then Ged repeats, right? And she teaches him uh, words like that to call down falcons and hawks and all sorts of things like that. So magic itself in A Wizard of Earthsea, and this is expanded even more in the other books, is you could say it's not just a symbol system. It's not just a technology. It is a complex reality that works with and folds into existence itself because the existence of the islands coming out of the sea, that itself is kind of magical. Roke Island itself has the grove where, you know, these trees are themselves magic. It shifts around the island all the time. We're going to see that become a very important thing in later stories. So nobody 
no matter how powerful, no matter how intelligent, no matter how good or evil they are, understands or masters magic as a totality. At best, one can know some things, and then there will be other things of which one is ignorant. Magic is something greater than any one of the magical creatures or magic users within this narrative universe, which doesn't mean that one simply despairs. You can learn more and more and more, and you can do so with a communal effort like what happens at Rogue. Now, early on in this work, we see that magic is also gendered in a way that people kind of take for granted in this book. We're going to see in later books, particularly in Tahanu and in the Tales from Earthsea, the short stories contained there, which give us some backstory in The Other Wind, that Le Guin is reconsidering this, undoing this to some degree. But in this book, magic is at the higher level basically for men and women are being cast as either weaker or evil in some way. So there's these two lines, right, that she brings up in relation to Ged's aunt, weak as a woman's magic and wicked as a woman's magic. And really the two main women who we get to see in this are Ged's aunt, who tries to take advantage of Ged. That would be wicked, right? And the enchantress's daughter, I suppose you could say the enchantress is a third, right? Who he later meets as Seret in the court of the Terranon. And she's definitely wicked. Now, weak, his aunt is kind of weak, right? She can't do an awful lot, as we, we've seen. Half of her stuff is actually nonsense, right? But Seret is a dangerous enchantress herself. So, you know, there's some interesting things going on here that, as I say, are going to be reconsidered later on. We can counterpose to that the place where one goes to learn the high arts, Roke, the island that is itself protected by magic, so no evil can approach it, uh, guarded by where the, the school itself is guarded by a doorman to whom you must reveal your true name in order to enter. You also have to ask him for his true name to get out. Right? And what we have here at Roke is an order, right? Almost like a monastic order, except not devoted to prayer, although they are, you know, about goodness and relation to the universe and stuff like that, but about understanding, shaping, and you might say setting the policy as best they can for magic. And the men at Roke, including young men or young boys like Ged, are celibate, right? They give up their sexuality in certain ways. They're systematically organized. They have a long tradition. They have ways of governance. They have different things that one has to go through. And they teach, right? They are themselves all mages. And what they produce are new mages who then they send out to the places where they are needed. And the need could be, you know, at great courts or the important islands. It can be people who, like Ogion, go back to Gaunt and do things like stop an earthquake, right? And then, you know, they're the wizard there living at Ray Albi. Or it can be 
places like the islands that Geddes sent to to protect against dragons, where normally a mage wouldn't be sent. And so Roke represents a certain way of doing and understanding magic. They are concerned with the balance. It's not the only way that one can learn magic. As a matter of fact, Ogion, who has Ged as his apprentice, he says to him, Ged, my young falcon, you're not bound to me or to my service. You did not come to me, but I to you. You are very young to make this choice, but I cannot make it for you. If you wish, I will send you to Roke Island, where all the high arts are taught. Any craft you undertake to learn, you will learn, for your power is great, greater even than your pride, I hope. I would keep you here with me, for what I have is what you lack, but I will not keep you against your will. Now choose between Realbi and Roke. And later on, when Ged returns to Gaunt and Ogion gets him out of his falcon shape, right, and nurses him back to health. He says, you were always my teacher. And uh, Ogion, you know, sort of presentiment of what's to come says, well, yeah, okay, but you're going to be ours too. (laughs) And so that's rogue magic. There are other wizards and warlocks who are represented as well in this. Not everybody gets to go to rogue. And as a matter of fact, it seems like there are at least different traditions that are being represented. Again, something we're going to learn about more in the later books. Roke is not the only place that has a magic training and teaching tradition. And so one of the great examples of this is when Ged is traveling to Oskal. He's going up to the north and he's being told by a man, go to the court of the Terranon if you need a sword to fight shadows with. And Ged says, in in what land is the court of the Terranon? In Oskal. At the sound of that name, Ged saw for a moment by a trick of memory a black raven on green grass who looked with him, sidelong with an eye like polished stone and spoke, but the words were forgotten. That land has something of a dark name, Ged said, looking ever at the man in gray, trying to judge what kind of man he was. There was a manner about him that hinted of the sorcerer, even of the wizard. And yet boldly as he spoke to Ged, there was a queer beaten look about him, the look almost of a sick man or a prisoner or a slave. You are from Roke. He answered, the wizards of Roke give a dark name to wizardries other than your own. So there are wizardries other than those of Roke. And Oskil and the court of the Terranon represents one of those. Now, this is centered around one of the old powers. So we should discuss that for a bit. In this case, the old power is in this stone of the Terranon. Right, And Ged is taken by Seret to this almost like little dungeon place, a dungeon cell. And he sees a stone that is rough and dank as the rest, a heavy, unshapen paving stone. But he felt the power of it as if it spoke to him aloud. His breath caught in his throat and a sickness came over him for a moment. This is the founding stone of the tower. This was the central place. This was a very ancient thing. An old and terrible spirit was prisoned in that block of stone. She says, that is the Terranon. Do you wonder we keep so precious a jewel locked away in our dearest hoard room? And she tells him that it was made before Segoy raised the islands of the world from the open sea. It was made itself when the world was made and will endure to the end of the world. It will help you defeat your enemy. And Ged says, I'm not going to speak with that spirit. That spirit is sealed in a stone. The stone is locked by a binding spell and a blinding spell and a charm of lock and ward and triple fortress walls and a barren land. Not because it's precious, but because it can work great evil. 
I don't know what they told you of it when you came here, but you who are young and gentle-hearted should never touch the thing or even look upon it. It will not work you well. And then she says, I have touched it. I have spoken to it and heard it speak. It does me no harm. And we find in the rest of that encounter that if Ged had touched the stone, if Ged had even spoken to the stone, instead of him being master of it, it would have mastered him, taken him over, and then allowed his shadow to come in and turn him into a Gebeth because a Gebeth makes a better slave than a man. The people that he met who suggested he go to Oskel were also slaves of the stone. And Sarit and her husband, the much older sorcerer there, are both trying to use the stone to capture Ged and further their own power. A little bit later, after Ged is freed by Ogion, what we find is that this is indeed named as one of the old powers. Ogion shook his head, but said no more for a while. Strange, you had strength enough to outspell a sorcerer there in his own domain, there in Oskal. You had strength enough to withstand the lures and fend off the attacks of the servant of an old power of earth. So this is confirming the story that Sarah tells him about. This is here at the beginning of creation. It's as old as the world itself. So that's why they call these the old powers. And they have their own kind of magic. And all these things interface with each other and intersect with each other in very interesting, sometimes mysterious ways that are revealed in these stories. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com slash sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.